Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your pleasure. Why Can Humans Do Everything? Written by Captain Candy. If you have opened this file, then you, like myself, have begun to wonder why is it that any individual human can do seemingly everything. Normally, races like my own, the Spalding have specializations, engineering, science, medicine, and even in those fields have further specializations. Electrical and mechanical engineers, for example. Every race in the Galactic Council is like this. Every last one, except for the humans. I was finally driven over the edge and felt the need to look at this when I hired a human as a lab assistant. Under their specialization, they had listed only a single word, yes. Confused and admittedly intrigued, I hired David to see what that meant. When I asked him about it, he laughed and said that it was some old human meme from ages long ago. He informed me that he put that there because it was essentially nothing that he wasn't able to pick up or do. Skeptical, I asked him if he could resequence my species genome to have orange skin and purple suction cups. In no more than an hour, he returned to me with a genetic sequence clearly derived from my species with those exact details. At this point, I thought that he must have a degree in genetic engineering, so I assigned him to instead construct a small-scale nanite swarm for waste disposal purposes. Essentially, a high-tech shredder. This time, he didn't come back for about six hours, but he indeed was holding the device that would house the nanites. Baffled, I asked him how he did that in such a time span. His response was something about a 3D printer not allowing the making of some of the parts, so he had to take a few hours to override the safeties. At this point, I listed off a number of tasks that normally would have taken teams of specialists to do, and paid him in advance. Two weeks. It took him two weeks to do what would have taken several teams months. Curious, I asked him about the specifics behind this, and oh boy, did I get an answer that threw me for a loop. Here, I recorded it. Have a listen. So, David, how is it that you can do all of these things so quickly? Oh, that's easy. I just download apps and tutorials from the Quantranet. You know, the human quantum internet. The... the what? I understand the internet and the quantum, but the two don't mix in my mind. What do you mean? Come on now, seriously, Doc. I know every species that makes it to warp travel has at least some basic instantaneous communication. And I know a solid 60% of species up here have internets on their home planets. Have none of you ever considered, you know, linking the two together, giving instant access to all the information on your species' internet, anytime, anywhere? I... what? No, only the most basic messages can be sent through unless you scale up the port used for entanglement, but that would cost trillions. We use them for military communications and scientific missions only. Are you telling me that the humans all have 100% access to all the information at all times? Ugh, Doc. Now you're going to have to make me tell you a story. All right, get a chair. This one is going to take a while to go over. Okay, so back in the early 21st century, humanity was playing with our quantum understanding of the universe. We finally figured out how to use quantum mechanics to run computers. Hooray, us! Of course, at first they were basic and were made to do parallel processing of multiple data values simultaneously. Now, while this did increase our understanding of our world and our computing power by a considerable margin, orders of magnitude in fact, the ones we made out were crude and simple to be polite. But looking back at the fact that they functioned at all was pure luck on our part. They were crude things. 
Now, after a few years, only five or six of the quantum core computers being a thing to the public, some genius came up with an idea and got to work on it. He wanted to make a self-entanglement quantum circuit that could read every value on the same time and essentially lock wave functions to save data at an immaterial level. It was a brilliant idea, really, one he did eventually succeed in doing. But before he got to his primary goal, he did something totally by accident. He realized that if he had two processes that were entangled and a decoder on both of them for inputs and outputs, well, he could in essence link two devices through those chips. At first, big whoop, right? Two devices connected, neat. But then the guy went out camping one weekend and lost cell service completely. But the odd thing was, he still had internet. So the genius looks around and eventually finds out that by linking his home PC with his cell phone, and was giving himself portable access to the internet anywhere at any time. Now this, this was a big ass discovery. He took this information, painted it, and started his own contranet service. Internet anywhere, anytime. Just use this pair of chips and two devices you want to connect. At this time, we were also working on Neurotech, like brain implanted computers that were at the stage only used for Alzheimer's, dementia, and regulating nerve impulses here and there to stop seizures. Stuff like that, right? Well, once this madman figured out quantum linking, that whole process became something different. The brain chip only needed one adapter chip to connect to a large computer now. Woo! The company at the time who makes these implants contacts the guy and they partner up. In a matter of only a year, the two have it cracked. We can now link our own brains directly to the internet and use our thoughts to control what we do there. Home computers vanish so fast it's crazy. You get the brain implant, it goes into every part of your mind, memory, sensory, etc. Now every sense and ability your brain has is linked to the internet, except for some medical areas that are strictly port only. This made instant full dive VR a thing. We could all close our eyes and tell the computer to switch our visual cortex into data to the computer and play games in virtual reality, just sitting on a damn couch at home. YouTube got big fast when Google jumped on that shit. First-person perspective recording through the chips, uploading segments of memories as videos. Now, you can go onto YouTube with the chip and literally first-person that bitch. Suddenly, you've got a first-person experience of pretty much anything you'll want. It's a golden age for learning, entertainment, and oh my god, I don't even want to think about the orders of magnitude of wealth the porn industry grew. So that's it, Doc. Ever since 2062, essentially humans have had the ability to experience anything in first person that they want to. Of course, some safety things cropped up here and there that were corrected, like the cult of Gary, where one guy named Gary's consciousness took over like 2 million people. People refer to it as Vault 108 Mishap, a reference to an old human video game where this one area had a cloning facility of a person named, you guessed it, Gary. Anyways, thanks to all the human sharing memories and experience like it's nothing, and to us, it is. Humanity quickly became a jack of all trades. Hell, I'd say we'd mastered them all too at the same time. Also, no human is ever alone thanks to this. We can chat with each other in our damn heads at any time we want, but we can also turn it off. It's like we are a selective hive mind. It's great, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, uh, uh any other questions? Uh, no, uh, no, that, that, that's all, David, at least on this subject matter. But on the related note, do you have any friends who would be interested in helping me run this lab? End of story. 
Story number two. War is War. Written by Echoing Cascade. On a late night galactic show, Admiral Armstrong was being interviewed by a host, she who sings no false praises, an Aeon woman. The red-skinned humanoid alien was discussing the current troubles in Sector 421, where the Imorax and the Arturians were on the edge of armed conflict over resource-rich planet Pariax 4. The host, like most of her species, was vaguely psychic and knew better than to ask where the human military would fall if the two species fought so she was planning to quickly move to the next topic. The other guest, the Silos shuttle racer Armion, on the other hand. So, are you guys stoked about the upcoming war, as we are? Everyone knows humans love war! She who sings no false praise did not need to use her talents to sense that the Silos asking the wrong question. A single look at Admiral smile was enough for her to feel the room temperature drop by a few degrees. Oh, frack me! This is not gonna end well. The Admiral laughed out loud and patted the man on the back, not too gently. Ha ha ha! Humans love war, huh? The smile he gave the Silas was the kind his ancestors saw but once, and from predators in moonless nights. Would you like to know some fun facts about war? Uh, well, I guess. The most common words of a dying soldier's are, Mother help, I want to go home, Mommy save me, I don't want to die. The Silas was at least seven feet tall, yet he could have sworn the Admiral was looming over him like a weight of regret. Funny, right? Uh, I don't. Oh, uh, are you familiar with the Geneva Convention? It's one of the reasons we got a fast track into joining the galactic community. Having such civilized rules for war was seen as a great indicator of the type of society we were. Have you read it? Uh, some of it. Every one of those rules exists because those atrocities happened during times of war. Hell, if we ever find an enemy that brings humanity to the brink, it'll become a checklist. The Silos was looking around for the exit. The only thing keeping him in place was the glare from the Admiral pinning him to his chair. You all want to know the stance of humanity on Pariax 4 situation? If I think it might become an open wall, I'll bring my dreadnought to the planet, commandeer a relief fleet and evacuate both sides, and then crack that planet to pieces. She who sings no false praise was debating calling security when Admiral Armstrong took a deep breath and regained his calm. (sighs) We don't like war, son. The reason we are so good at it is because we hate it more than anything. We believe that war is hell and throughout the millennia we have a seeing nothing to change our minds. So uh, you won't support the Imarak or the Arturians if the war is declared? She who sings no false praise felt it was high time she asked the question that had been avoiding all night. The Admiral shook his head. Frack no! We'll declare peace on both of them, whether they like it or not. End of story. What the humans hold back, written by Captain Candy. The camera opens up to a purple octopod-type species. The ends of all of its eight tentacles were curled up in sheer terror and the purple color was almost ultraviolet. It was shivering violently to the point where it was twitching. After several long moments, it uncurled from its fear response, and it was finally discernible as it was an Olect, one of the space-born species that was a little over the average abilities with psychics. Their race was well known as overly curious and brave to the point of stupidity. If you ever saw one having a fear response, you didn't ask questions, you shut up and listen. And it was unheard of for them to be anything other 
then a light shade of purple. Whatever this being had seen, it was horrifying beyond words. Finally, after a few long, deep, audibly shaking breaths, he began projecting words into the psychic receiver. Dear, dear counsel, I, I have seen beyond the wall of the human mind. I truly wish I hadn't. I wish that I could erase the memories, but I will not subject any memory specialist to, uh, to that, uh, Counsel, I am putting forward information as fear rating Omega. Do not let any person who does not need to view this do so. As a form of mercy upon their soul, I... I will not leave a psychic imprint of what I saw. I cannot. Any race, not my own or a human, would go utterly and completely mad beyond any help upon seeing what I saw. I'll start from the beginning. You know how my race is dangerously curious, and fear not even death in pursuit of sating this curiosity, I assume. Well, I got especially curious about what humans are hiding behind that, that damned wall they insist they don't consciously make. So I put out an ad to humans, 200 credits per hour, for them to let me try and break through that wall. I got a volunteer in under an hour. It started with some pleasantries and a contract and the promise that I wouldn't peek at their memories, all standard. And then I had them lie down on a human standard couch, while I attempted to break past this wall. I sent my astral body into their mind and saw it in front of me, a wall of psychic energy so dense and thick that it was equivalent to psychic neutronium. I tried many things, a burst of all my psychic energy in a pinprick-sized spot to drill in, slamming my astral form into it, which resulted in a headache. But what finally worked was, uh, quite frankly, ludicrous. Eventually, after trying dozens of methods, I, 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 I knocked. I knocked on the wall like it was a door. I don't know where the idea came from, but I regret that I had it at all. After knocking, the door actually materialized in the wall and opened. Just like that. I was... Uh, Astounded beyond words and gently flew through it. Once inside, though, I was stopped by something. I recognized it immediately as something only seen in lesser, non-psychic entities or untrained children. It was an ego. The ego, upon seeing me, lunged at me, screaming, No! No intruder! Intruder bad! I not fail, job. Pride not let me fail! It then swung its fist, and I obviously didn't dodge. This was an astral body, of course, and it couldn't be hit. And then it hit me. Literally, the headache I got from it was unholy in proportion. I understand the human term migraine now. After realizing that I could actually be hit, I fought back, and quickly the ego was unconscious on the ground. So I kept walking and eventually came across the super ego. This one was more intelligent and tried to talk and convince me to go back and to leave. It said, that it didn't know why. It was just told to tell others to go back the direction they came from. I ignored it and continued forward. Eventually, I came across what was clearly an id. It was a writhing mass and oozed raw emotion of every kind in such intense waves that I began to feel them. To my surprise, it was intelligent. Much more than the superego, it stopped me and said, No, hello there, visitor. Look, I don't know how you got this far, but stop, turn around, and go back. 
You do not want to go forwards. I, the only thing behind me, is fear. Endless, merciless, crippling fucking fear. We four guard what is being me. They're the fourth guards it directly. He is the only one of us brave enough to be anywhere near that mass of pure fear. Other than the conscious self, that is. He goes into that dome every night, too. I don't even want to repeat it. Look, dude, you don't want to see it. I'm telling you. Not only that, but I can't let you go. I no. We cannot risk anything damaging or harming the seal. If one of those things gets out. Anyways, I'll stop you by force if necessary. As it spoke of what was behind it, it radiated a deep primordial fear that I had never felt before. It was instinctual to a genetic level, pure horror. But I pushed through that and tried to go forward. True to its words, though, the id tried to stop me, and after a long, exhausting fight, I eventually got it to submit. Not by damaging it, but it told me that it could not waste any extra energy on someone as small as me and just let me pass. Then I saw it, the dome. It was clear, and I could see through it. But on the inside of it was some sort of black swirling smoke. It was covered in small cracks that would heal in a moment and reappear elsewhere on the dome before the crack was fixed again. As I got closer and closer, I started to be able to see within. Eventually, I stood an arm's reach from the dome, and under it was an entire dimension. All over this dimension were portals of psychic energy with many, many uncountable beings coming in through them. Some of them were horrifying writhing masses of tentacles, both dimensional biologicals that were inside out as much as they were normal. Unrecognizable forms, myriads of them. Then, the ones I recognized. Koth, the great devourer from my people's mythos. Demar, from the Squell's mythos. And many others destroyers. Then and then, oh gods, the ones from the human mythos, I, I saw Cthulhu march forward and lead an army to kill swaths of other entities with these brother and sister horrors and minions. I saw Satan summoning countless demons in countless forms, dragging countless beings into red portals of hell. I saw a shining human form, sending forth angels with flaming blades, cutting down everything in their path. I saw an eight-armed goddess destroy and end parts of reality itself. I saw a shining golden man with an odd halo mesmerize and dominate billions with his calm smile. Every human horror and god and imagined creature was here. So were the ones of every other race I knew. I fell backwards, my astral form hitting the desert sands within this human's mind. I scrambled back, crying in terror and fear. Then, one of the evil ones looked up at me. It was a small one, barely notable amongst the titans, barely more than the size of an average human dressed like a clown, and everything in the dome seemed to avoid it. Yet... It smiled at me, and I am ashamed to admit that my astral form lost control of my faculties. And then it shouted, and everything froze. Every single entity within the dome simultaneously looked directly at me. 
I felt my mind eroding until a hand held one of my tentacles and spoke. Close your eyes and turn around. Slowly. They cannot touch you through the stone, though many have tried. Good. Good. Now open your eyes. We need to have a little chat. First off, I'm sorry I let you look into the dome first before speaking with you, but really, you wouldn't have stopped unless I let you look. But I needed one of you aliens to know what we humans are stopping, so when I heard that you knock, I obviously had to open the door. I turned to look, and it was the man whose mind I was in, but not him, I asked. Now you the subconscious, what in the hells is all of that? Yes, I am the subconscious, and that over there is a thin dome of unbridled psychic energy standing between reality and those monsters, gods, demons, and titans. I don't know the specifics of how, but I know what. And yes, I did just read your mind. Look, I'll explain it from the start. First of all, humans are psychic. In fact, we are probably the most powerful ones, and well, I'd say the universe. But the trapped things over there suggest the entire multiverse, so far anyway. Next up is how the hell these things get you. I don't know the specifics, not even remotely. Humans act as some sort of interdimensional, multi-level live bait trap for these fecking things. These things have taken over their home universe in one way or another, and want to expand or are fleeing their homes from something stronger. Hells, some of them are kidnapping to repopulate their universe. But for whatever reason, when anything tries to come to our universe, it is drawn into this prison inside the human psyche. Myself, the id, the ego, and the superego all stand guard in case any of these things get out. Occasionally, wisps of their energy escape in the form of smoke. That's how Lovecraft wrote his books, how God got his Bible, etc. But this is the reason you didn't see our psychic potential. Every last ounce of our power goes into stopping these damned things. And some of us are strong enough to keep the barriers perfectly intact and even have extra energy to have visions of the future and the like. We don't know what one of these things got here first, but we know they tried to break free. Luckily, all of humanity's combined psychic energy gathers here to form this barrier. Everyone has their own barrier, sure, and that outer wall, but they all overlap and superposition so as a set of dimensional universal coordinates to trap these feckers. Every human who has ever lived has trapped these things a lot of the myths you aliens have is from before humans evolved into being. We're pretty sure, me and the other subconsciouses, that as soon as the first human evolved, it drew in and trapped these damned things. You're all legends and myths. All real. Every last one of them. This is also why humans have separate parts of their minds like the early children you all have in teach. See, each part of our minds guards against and stops these things in its own unique way. The humans discovered us, though, and we hid away so they thought and still think that we aren't real. Only theory. Anyway, this is what is behind the wall. I hope you're happy knowing it. Next time you see a wall, though, that seems desperate to keep things out. Maybe don't go knocking. Now, go outside and tell everyone you can, and I do mean everyone, not to try and break that outer wall. If they do, and we have to stop and rebuild, and even a wisp of psychic smoke gets out of the dome, when it happens, well, I'll, I'll let you fill the blanks yourself. 
Take care now. I'm sending you out. From there, I was kicked out of the human mind. At first, I was numb and mindlessly paid the human their credits. Then when I was done. But the more I realigned into reality, the more I thought on it, the more afraid I became. Please, dear counsel, do not try and get past that wall anymore. I never want to ever see one of those monsters in our reality. Good, evil, neutral, none of them. Please, I beg of you to stop attempting to break that wall. Message from Quip before the first break and following multi-galactical war against Cthulhu. End of story. The next level, written by Perilous Platypus. I was going to die. My rune mail had reached its limits. The heads-up display was a sea of red, taking Great Plains to highlight exactly how broadly up Shit Creek I was. Two-thirds of the core systems were in contingency mode. The other third had just given up. Vecking quitters. Manor tanks were mostly dusted. I had one more shot of gojus before I was going to be plain old meat and bones. Not that it would have mattered. My spellbook was exhausted. It'd take weeks to get it restored. I was down to cantrips and life sacks, and as much as I love slightly illuminating a room, it probably wasn't going to get the job done against an infestation like this. Another dozen reticles popped up in my HUD. Two greater fiends, a gaggle of imps, and abominix, way more than I could handle in my current state. Probably more than I could handle fresh out of the dropship. Well, shit, I sighed, more resigned than fearful. It was always going to come to this. You didn't put on the rune mail with an eye to longevity. Besides, I'd had more than a few turns around the world. I wasn't going out green. I was one mildewy son of a bitch. Well, fine. Might as well go out with the bang. The last mana tank registered empty as the rune mail injected it directly into my spine. Not the preferred place, but the fastest way to get it into my system. My senses immediately sharpened. The world taking on a Christmas... New reticles highlighted as demon hordes turned their attention on me. I was the last man standing. Twelve male carriers had dropped with simple mission. Hold. And we'd done our level best. We'd bought them six days. Two days beyond the mission estimates. Fecking bean counters always shorted us. My left foot slid forward and I hunched down. My hands splayed outwards moving into a caustic stance. Life shot, I said into my helm. The spell highlighted and an alert flashed. This spell requires a male caster to offer their own life force as a component of casting. Proceeding will result in your death. Continue. I groaned. Who the feck let the lawyer into the male carrier operating system? Continue, I gritted out. The alert was replaced with a long string of runes arranged neatly on page 39 of my spellbook. My left hand moved to my hip when my spellbook was resting within this integrated satchel. I pressed my palm against the button, releasing the runes and drawing them into the, my hand. The demons scampered forward, eager to exact their vengeance. Behind them, the abominix lumbered forward, the great behemoth standing forty feet tall, its sewn-together skin bulging out obscenely, with tears of flesh revealing the squirming, animated corpses within. I settled my gaze on it, my eyes fixated on the swirl of black energy pulsing in the middle of its chest. If I was going down, I was going to shoot for maximum points. My left hand came forward and I leaned into the movement. I drew the runes into my body, 
feeling them course through my veins and brand themselves in my heart. I gasped at the shock of it. For obvious reasons, I'd never cast a life sex spell before. I could definitely say that, if this was the experience, I never intended to again. As the last ruin settled into place, I felt the power well up within me, a giant wave looking for release. I wouldn't be able to contain it for long, but I managed to contain it for long enough to get the job done. As I fell to my knees, my vision fading black, I saw an abominic shudder and then rip apart at the seams. Gotcha! All went black. It is an impressive voice, really, a lilting voice said from behind me. And very exciting, if I do say so myself. And I'm really, truly thankful for it. The first human to break through. Wow! Huge! Momentous! I don't want to make it all about me, but this is a big moment for both of us. I've waited so long to get my halo, so... Having a new plane open up is a big deal. Not that it's guaranteed or anything, but uh, it is a promising first step. Very promising. The voice nattered on as I tried to gather my senses. I was blinded by a blaring light. Couldn't smell anything or move. Everything felt slightly out of place, but somehow more whole than it's been in a long time. The heart was gone, so it was hard to get any sense of precision on the topic. I hadn't realized how dependent I'd gotten on the rune mail to tell me how I felt. Status, I said. No response. Strange. At least a verbal readout should appear. Status, I repeated. At this, the voice paused for a moment. Oh, I'm sorry. You had to leave the armor behind. Material goods struggle with interplanar transportation. It's sort of a souls-only highway. If you take my meaning... We have to recreate everything on the site. Uh, speaking of, uh, is your body to your liking? Uh, the measurements in the blueprint tend to be quite accurate. There's often so much going on under the surface that we can miss, particularly the features from lived experience that we can't quite replicate when building a body from a blueprint. The voice sighed now. <sighs> Which is really quite a shame. There'd be a shorter integration period if we could make the adjustments. But the boss is quite adamant on the topic. They're always saying, there is there and here is here. But if the stats are supposed to be some big rule, then I don't get why we even have a soul vestment. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. I tried to turn, but I found I couldn't. My body couldn't find purchase on anything. It felt like I was unmoored, drifting in space. Who are you? Me? Oh, I'm sorry. I got so carried away I forgot proper introductions. The light dimmed and a wisp emerged in my peripheral vision, floating along until it was directly in front of me. I am Jebediah Lacarian Lucidian, or uh, a bunch of lights pulsed within the wisp in rapid succession. But I'm quite content to be called Jeb. The wisp notably brightened when it said that word Jeb. I've always wanted to have a nickname. Angels are too far for that, which is quite disappointing. You're lucky. You've had 87. 87? I replied. Yes, though a vast majority were applied to you during your earliest years by your parents. They've likely failed to imprint upon your memory, which is a shame, really. Schnookums is particularly endearing. The pulsing paused for a bit. You may also call me Snookums, if you would prefer it to Jeb, and would not mind me borrowing it. It drifted off, sounding almost hopeful. Snookums was out. Jeb, where am I? Jeb's light dulled slightly at the choice of name, but forged onward. 
That's quite tricky to explain, but thankfully there is a prepared script on the topic. I memorized it some time ago, and have practiced it many times. It is part of the obligated communications protocol, which is just a fancy way of calling it the stuff I'm supposed to say when I get a chance to say it. Pay close attention, there will be a quiz on it later. The lights in the background faded further, making Jeb appear even brighter by contrast. When Jeb spoke again, the voice was more serious. Long ago, the Prime Plane was created by forces mysterious and powerful. Quick aside, the forces were mysterious and powerful, but it isn't their name or anything. It's just the sort of forces they were. I wanted to clarify because it can be confusing. I spent a few eons calling them mysterious and uh, powerful, and it was very embarrassing when I found out the truth. Anyways, back to the OCP. Um, the Prime Plane is an anchor of existence, the root from which the planar tree springs. With the passage of time, the planar tree has grown full. The trunk has many branches. Those branches have their own branches. At the end of each branch are a series of leaves. Each of these leaves is a plane of existence. There are many millions of them now. Jeb interrupted their own speech again. Uh, just so you know, this version of the OCP was designed specifically for humans, in case their plane ever broke through. I hope the metaphor is easy for you to follow. We don't have much experience with trees, uh, though. Uh, I would like to get to know some better. They, they seem quite friendly. All of this made very little sense. I was beginning to wonder whether it was possible to call in a supervisor. Jeb seemed to struggle with whatever task they were supposed to be doing. It felt like they were a shitty tutorial, offered to the most confusing way possible. Jeb's light dimmed greatly. The A emitted a sigh. Yes, it is possible to call in a supervisor, though uh, I would uh, rather you not. I froze. Could they read my thoughts? Yes, Jeb replied. We can talk in here if you want, but we're generally advised to avoid telepathic communications with species not already oriented towards it. It can often lead to unplanned and unintended consequences. Jeb's voice boomed in my head, somehow ear-splitting. I reached up and clutched my ears. Ah, get out! Ah, I'm very sorry about that. I really am making a mess of this. I was so sure it would go well. Spent so much time preparing. Jeb's light dimmed to a dull twinkle. If you'd like, I could request the assistance of a more seasoned guide. I schooled my thoughts into order, considering my options. It was a strange exercise to control each thought out of concern for how Jeb might interpret it. For all of their flaws, Jeb did seem to be well-meaning. There was no guarantee a more seasoned guide would be the same. What are you trying to do, Jeb? Guide you, they replied glumly. Their light barely a flicker. That's an angel's job, or at least my job. Maybe not for much longer. I decided to sidestep that and focus on the issue at hand. Guide me where? To your place on the prime plane, Jeb replied. I made a conscious effort to remain patient. Isn't my place back on my plane? Last I remember, I was fighting to protect my home. I'd rather go back and help with that. I was strangely calm, given everything going on. The memory of the battlefield, the home that I'd left behind, was still real, but it felt somehow distant, as if it had happened to someone else, some place else, which appeared to be true. Plan R transportation is a one-way thing. Once you move to a higher level, you can't go back down. Jeb bobbed up and down, bouncing back and forth. 
I got the distinct impression that he was thinking. Once your soul leaves the leaf and goes into the branch, it can't go back. We call it breaking through. Breakthrough conditions are quite complicated and very difficult to reach. Many leafs never have a soul breakthrough. I was very hopeful about humanity, though. It is a very impressive species. I thought it might be possible, and you've just proven that it is. Jeff was twinkling more now. It's a shame it took the rot to make it happen. No one should have to deal with them. Them? You call them demons. They're the rot to us. A blight on planar tree, tainting the branch and leaf alike. Your plane has recently been forced to confront them, which is quite sad. We wish we could help, but the planar tree is beyond us. We can cultivate and we can tend, but we cannot intervene. The rot has no such restriction. It corrupts everywhere it goes. Many leaves have been lost. Whole branches even. A brief silence ensued. I tried to picture such a thing, but it was a level of mindfuckery beyond my capacity. I did agree that the rot wasn't something anyone should have to deal with. So, now that I have broken through, what am I supposed to do? Just hang out and talk with you, Jeb. Well, that's part of it. I suppressed a mental crowd. I am to be your guide, after all. But mostly what we'd like you to do is what you were already doing. Fighting them. I already died once doing that. I'm not sure I fit the bull. Jeb floated closer now. Their flight flaring a new molten red color. Oh... You're so very wrong there. Part of your breakthrough triggered contingencies was your overkill factor, which is a fancy way of measuring how much damage you dealt the rot relative to the expected outcome with available resources. A breakthrough contingency is triggered at 300%, which means you did three times more damage to the rot than predicted. Packing bean counters are always shorting us, I broke in. Which uh, led us to believe that soul vestment would be a suitable use of your consciousness on our plane. Soul vestment? I asked, confused by the term. Yes, we reattach your soul to a recreation of your body, provide you with angelic armaments modified to your capabilities, and then send you to cleanse the rot from the planar branches. It's very heroic work, and uh, I'm led to believe it's quite satisfying to the souls that break through on a battle-oriented contingencies. This uh, isn't my body. It feels like my body, I replied, flexing my fingers and toes, and unsettling feeling of something being off-settled on me. I had regained my feeling in my big toe, something I hadn't felt in over ten years. Uh, almost. I could sever the nerve endings in your toe, if you'd prefer, though it would be off-blueprint and generally frowned upon. The boss has required that we not make lived experiences adjustments without prior authorization, Boss says it's important that the vested souls understand that who they are here is different than who they were there, even if they're still the same. If you're confused, don't worry, I am too. I prefer if you'd stay out of my head, I replied, unnerved. It's quite impossible for me. It would be like asking you not to see me. If you prefer, I can pretend I'm not aware of your internal thoughts, though it'll make getting things done considerably more difficult. Not that I'd mind, but it could mean that you need to be revested a lot more than you'd like. Revested? Have your soul reattached to a new body, like a reincarnation. Only you're still you, and you remember the old you, even though you're a new you. Jeb bounced back and forth. There wouldn't be this uh, <clears throat> excellent tutorial the next time, but you'd need to go through adjustment again every time you lose your body. So what you're saying is, I'm immortal. Until you deny vestment or the rot consumes the prime plane, 
I should be capable of gathering your soul and routing it back here whenever you lose a body. Jeb dimmed suddenly. Unless you're caught by a soul snatcher, then your soul will be eternally tormented. I... I don't recommend getting caught by a soul snatcher. Eternal torment is uh, very miserable. Not nasty stuff. Fight forever, dying over and over again. That sounds like hell, I replied. Yes, exactly, Jeb brightened considerably. Only you're here to destroy the devil. I warmed to the topic. With what? You'll be thrice blessed, purified, sanctified, and endowed with angelic armaments. It's very exciting stuff. I've watched a thrice blessed ceremony on many occasions, and the vested soul was always extremely pleased with the outcome. And, uh, why is that? Well, it has to do with the battle contingency breakthroughs. Overkill factor is just a small part of it. The bigger parts have to do with the nature and quality of the soul who they fought for, how they fought, what they will sacrifice. These souls want to fight, they want to do justice, and since they all died in service of a greater good, they love the idea of retribution. Jeb flared Molten Red again. That's a long way of saying they absolutely adore angelic armaments. Are they more powerful than rune mail? Oh yes, much. If you'd like, we can proceed past the introduction and just get to the good stuff. I smiled. Yes, Jeb. Let's do that. End of story. The Otters Meet a Human by Farmwitch4275 Our proudest, greatest moment had gone horribly wrong. The mission had started so beautifully. A perfect launch, a perfect orbital entry, and we managed to gather more data about our bright blue home in the void than we'd ever hoped. Launch, take some photos to use the base satellite, whip ourselves around our closest moon, then head back home. It was during the preset up phase for the moonshot where everything went wrong. Pressure warning spiked suddenly, blowing one of our thrusters off. Our command pod, or rather, what was left of it, careened out of control some 200,000 clicks away from safety. We panicked and tried our best to stabilize the craft as best we could, and eventually we did. Our ordeal, however, had only just begun. Soon, we faced more failures as we were forced to ditch damaged components to lighten up our trajectory and to try to save what little fuel we had. Seven hours after we started, we realized there was no hope. There was no fuel left for a burn strong enough to get us home. And even if there was, the parachute hatches had failed, meaning even if we got back home, we would be incinerated or turned into a crater. I looked at my fellows in the command box. I was so proud of them, of us. We had come so far. Lieutenant Lorid, Lieutenant Byrd, and Flight Lead Gruber. My fellow artists, from digging burrows in the ground to flying in space. So, uh, looks like this is it, huh? I looked at my friends with a half smile. Never thought that I'd go out like this, Cap, but uh, what a way to go. Byrd looked back at me with a smile. He snarled, twitching with a mix of excitement and fear. No, don't care what's out there. Look at it, it's so beautiful. Lieutenant Laura chirped his long, flattened tail, betraying his demeanor, as he slipped between his legs in fear. Yeah, it's glorious, my commandant. I fixed the gyro, at least, so uh, at least we can reorient for the trip home, Gruber said as his claws tapped away at the keyboard. The radio clackered and splattered at us. Oh, don't tell me the radio's failed now. I'm on it, Cap, Bard exclaimed and snaked his way through the cockpit. 
Gruber moved away, his slender body and short legs giving plenty of space. As if we did not have enough problems, I will check the rest of the electronics. Same. Maybe I can see if the EVA airlock will hold. I can go outside and see if we can do repairs. Lorette clutched his webbed feet at the door and carefully examined it. I got to work as well. Perhaps I can see how to stabilize the load between the thrust modules. The radio clackled loudly again. A voice erupted from it. It was in a strange language, or at least spoken very broken and very otterish. There is a signal coming in, main commandant. It's not from home. Perhaps they're having difficulties communicating or trying to bounce the signal off a satellite. Try to see if you can redirect power from lighting to the radio. We'll use our personals for now, I said, and grabbed us all a flashlight from a toolbox. Ah, there we go! Gruber chirped happily as the crackle ceased. Hello, this is Aluka 13. Come on, is that you? The radio remained silent for a moment. I hung my head in despair, my whiskers buzzing. Keep trying, I commanded. Hello there, may I talk to you about your car's extended warranty? Came a loud, blurted voice of distorted Ottish, followed by a strange chuckle. Hello, this is Franz Gruber. We are in need of assistance. Our radio equipment appears to be damaged. Can you please relay our signal back to Everton Air Force Base, yeah? A spark of hope. The crew immediately perked up. Hmm, let me think. Uh, no. The voice responded, followed by one of the most sadistic laughs I've ever heard. What's the... Hey, we've the... We need help. Hello, hello. The radio crackled again and went silent. No. Oh, God. Another one of those crazies got access to a backwater radio signal again, I said and hung my head low with disapproval. This is Everton, Everton to Elusia 13. Do you copy? The desperate voices of ground control suddenly came through and we immediately snapped to attention. Everton, this is Elusia 13, reading you loud and clear. Keep it short, we seem to have radio issues, I barked. The radio crackled a bit more, as if there was some nearby interference. Alu 13, we are receiving... there's severe... trying to... Resignal is strange. We got out there. The message from home was gobbled, barely coherent. In between the message, I could hear laughing. We fiddled around some more. Yeah, I can't take this. Something's out there. Maybe it's the antenna. I gotta fix it, Lorid said, and put his suit on. I hate to risk it, but what choice do we have? We will all go out, except for France. While we're out there, we can repair the parachute hatches, I said, and gave the poor signal for everyone to put on their suits. So, yes, sir, came the universal reply from the crew. I waited for a moment after I had put my suit on and secured it. Then I got the okay signal from everyone. Suits on, depressurizing, tanks are filling, no leaks. We got that going at least, I said, as I watched the green gauges on oxygen tanks fill up. Depress complete, clear for EVA. No sound came from anything as the air around us vanished, replaced by the silence of space and our own breathing. A few moments passed and Lorid slipped out of the craft's airlock. A few of these moments followed. By the mothers of milk! What the fluffing hell, Captain! Captain! The Lorid nearly shattered our eardrums as his distorted, terrified screaming filled our radios. A happy, almost sadistically happy laugh came over the radios. <laughs> I was wondering when you'd do notice me. It's kind of obvious, to be honest, but God, that was totally worth it. <laughs> Lorid frantically entered the craft again and scurried back inside, shuttering the door behind him as fast as he could. He looked at me with terror in his eyes as he screamed something at me from behind his mask. But the radio had turned off and we couldn't hear it. 
He looked straight at me. He sniffled, twitching frantically, as he was desperately wheezing something from behind his helmet. I watched him as he tapped on my radio beacon to remind him of the fact. He twitched and fumbled for a moment, then crawled around looking for his access switch. He found it. Oh boy, did he find it. Aliens, came his loud, ear-shattering scream. It was at this moment the room suddenly went dark like an eclipse. We went dead silent, an eerie moment of calm overtaking us. It was then the cockpit was overcome by a shadow that moved from left to right. The shadow slowly blanketed us, like a giant shadowy being was enveloping us. And suddenly, the hulking mass of refined metals and telltale structures of hangars locking mechanisms honed itself into view. Moments later, we were inside of a massive hangar. It would have fit our entire launch assembly inside it, easily. In front of us was an array of craft, the designs of which were oddly familiar, similar to our own, but significantly bulkier and very, very heavily armored. We could surmise, based on our own ship classification system, the approximate sizes and abilities of the craft that we were looking at. This thing had 50 or more small fighter craft, 30 or so bomber craft, some ships that looked fit for mining operations, and in the back of the hangar we saw warships similar in design to one of our battleships just casually suspended from the ceiling. We had no time to take in the sight, as the pod was gently grabbed by a mechanical manipulation arm, then slowly lowered to the floor. We could clearly see whatever was here was far in advance of anything that we had. As we heard the sunk of metal, we took note of the guns, cannons, and weapons mounted on the fighters. I quickly ran a short plan through my head, an escape plan. Maybe, if whatever was in here was hostile, we could steal the ship and make it home. Maybe, do enough damage to drive them off, reverse engineer so that we could fight back. My thoughts were interrupted by the sound of our radio crackling back to life. Everton to 13, do you copy? Desperate pleading from the radio. I was barely able to comprehend what I was seeing. I stuttered and stammered as I tried to understand what in the holy milk just happened. G -g Ground control, uh, the, 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 this is Alku. We, we have, uh, we, we... Everton, we read you. What's the situation? The volume rose. Everton, this is Lucia 13. We have first contact. I repeat, we have first contact. I screamed in terror as the hangar door closed locking us in. The pod sunk harshly as it was clamped onto and slowly lowered to the floor. A voice came over the radio. Hangar pressurization complete. Blast doors secured. We clambered to our feet as we suddenly felt the pull of gravitational force. Anything that wasn't stowed away suddenly clunked to whatever direction was down, including us. We asserted a defensive posture as I held my men back at the entrance of the pod, we could hear clanking of some kind as whatever owned the ship was now clawing at the pod's door. I waited for a moment. And waited. Nothing. I stopped hearing noises, then a... A knock? Wait. A knock? Hello in there, anybody home? It said. The voice coming in over our radios is muffled from the outside. How to come and taunt, what do we do? Franz asked me. I simply shook my head. Are you coming out voluntarily or do I have to get the crowbar? Is that hatch broken or something? You are being very rude, you know. The voice said once again. I was half scared, half curious. I reached over to the hatchway and unlatched it. I took a very ginger step outside the door and saw the thing. It was two and a half times our size, six feet tall with broad shoulders, a bipedal creature covered in heavy armor plating and fabric that created a sort of armored monk robe-like appearance. 
Two terrifying front-facing eyes filled with bright colors of sparkling blue, just like the lakes of home as if to mock us. Two long arms with five fingers. It did not appear to have any claws or anything, as its gloves were smooth, unlike ours. It was standing at a respectable distance from the pod now that I'd come out. I took a deep breath, and by mother's milk was the air fresh. I felt my senses heighten and my mind rush with thought as I took in a deep breath of some truly amazing oxygen. It was also scented. It smelled like I was in the midst of an evergreen forest after a spring rain. I felt so relaxed. My jowls chattered curiously in response to the world around me. My crewmates, aware I was not screaming and not fighting anything, wandered outside one by one. I looked up at the strange creature, who was simply smiling at me, careful not to show teeth, tapping one foot while waiting for something. I held up my paw to salute. Uh, hello? I said gingerly. Hey, what's up? Figured you needed a hand, so yeah, he simply said. Well, his mouth moved, but the words he spoke were out of sync. He must have some kind of translation system. Um, thanks, sir. We, we kind of needed it, I said, rubbing the back of my head slightly embarrassed. Ah, nonsense. You had it handled. I figured I'd just, uh, you know, cut the middleman out, he replied, shuffling nervously. Always happy to cut out the middleman, I replied, half-jokingly. We shared an awkward chuckle together before I finally noticed my radio was barking at me. Helusia 13, come in! Helusia 13, for God's sake, come in! Uh, excuse me. I have to take this call, I said, and rumbled back into the pod to recover a handhold. Franz moved over to the side at Marvel at the engineering array in front of him. Lorette examined the creature standing in front of us more closely. Bayard took a look at the pod itself to better find out what the hell even happened. This is Lucia 13, go ahead, I said. I was out of breath at this point. I had nothing to save save what needed to be said. Oh, thank the mother. Can you confirm that you have first contact? He asked. What do you mean, can you confirm exactly? I asked, a bit bewildered. Can you give us any definitive signs? We're in the dark here came the reply. Are you fucking kidding me? This ship has to be at least a mile long. Have you tried looking out the window? I yelled out into the radio. The radio went silent and the creature behind me held his hands up to his mouth. Clearly, he was enjoying the embarrassment show that we had just put on. I leaned against the pod and tried to calm my headache with my paw to my temple. Uh, uh Alusia 13, this is Everton. Uh, confirm first contact. It's, uh, uh, very heavily armed, HQ said, trailing off. So I noticed, well, it, he, they, uh, non-hostile. Seems friendly, at least. Uh, I'm gonna go give this a shot, I said, putting the radio back. I approached the creature and stood it to attention. I tapped my left foot, brought my paw up to my temple. Captain Reginald Waters, Cassian Air Force, Space Corps, at your service. Welcome to Alaria. He slammed his feet together, left arm down at his side, right hand up to his head. Captain Lukash Lockhorn, proud owner of this fine vessel. The sirens gazed. I'm human. Uh, mostly. Mostly? Uh, he removed part of his robe on his right arm, showing extensive cybernetic augmentation. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, uh, look. I'm not a diplomat. I'm just a miner. I'm here to drill holes into rocks and make cash. I'm gonna be frank with you. I'm not qualified, or even illegally allowed to talk to you, but, uh, you were in trouble, so I had to do something, you know. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to get you guys back home and phone this in to my bosses. Let the bigwigs handle this. That is fair enough. First contact protocol must be quite strict in your world. If I may ask a few questions, though, I asked, approaching him a bit closer. 
Sure, I can answer a few things, but I have to ready the shuttle well. It's a big goddamn ordrill, but uh, you get the idea. It can go into Atmos, so yeah. He shrugged and smiled. Please go ahead. Um, can you also take the wreckage of the pod? We would much like to investigate the wreckage and find out what happened plus to the, um, uh, the re outside. Uh, if that's not too much trouble, I asked as politely as I could. I noticed when I twitched my whiskers, he seemed to like it. Oh, sure. Gonna need a load up and recover. Give me a sec. He moved his arm up and typed on a wearable computer. Bayard and Franz watched with awed fascination as a giant mechanical arm moved things around inside the hangar. So, uh, my first question. So long as it isn't tech or security related, I can answer anything, he said, typing on his pad, seemingly manually controlling the arm. Ah, uh, are you on your own? Why am I seeing only you on the ship? Where is the rest of your crew? I asked, perplexed. Oh, uh, well, uh, you're not the first alien species we've encountered, and, um, well, uh, my shipmates would scare the crap out of you, so they volunteered to stay out of this until we get a proper greeting, he said pointing at a window in the hangar above us. The hairs in the back of my head rose in terror as the smiling faces of three other creatures stared dead into my soul. A strange creature with eight legs wearing some kind of engineer's cap. A large muscular beast with a long snout and sharp teeth, with short, thick brown fur. A large serpentine-like lizard, using a series of mounted mechanical arms to wave at me. They waved at me with a smile. A friendly wave and a smile to be sure but I couldn't help feeling very intimidated. Well, that, 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 that's nice. Uh, you um, make lots of very scary friends, huh? I said, chuckling nervously. Meh, every species is pretty trill, actually, except for the Borisa, the big brown one. Word of advice, don't let him drink too much beer. Uh, also, Solaracus Serpentai. You'll learn more about everyone eventually, but almost done. He smiled at me and started to walk to the drill ship. A complex-looking mechanism lowered it to ground level, and a ramp appeared from it, so we could go in. Ah, uh, I see. Sounds like a, a fun bunch to be around. System secure, Captain. Ready to disembark on your command. Relay has already been sent to headquarters, uh, and a diplomatic frigate is on its way. A voice came from the radio unit, and it scared the shit out of me. He noticed my discomfort. Yeah, I know, the hissing takes some getting used to, but yeah, hell of a young player. Anyway, come hither, kind sir, thy chariot awaits. Got the pardon debris from the rest of your craft on board the cargo bay. I don't want to risk any contamination, so uh, I'll put you in isolation booth and secure myself in the cockpit. I'd recommend quarantining yourself when you get back too, you know, uh, just in case. That is a very good point. I shall do so. Uh, what happens now? I asked and moved into the craft. Its passageways were incredibly spacious. I could do a dance with my wife in these hallways with how big they were. Well, I knew where my priorities were, I suppose. Well, after I get you home, we're going to do a full decontamination thing. Make sure that we don't get anyone sick. Then after dropping the cargo off, and of course you, I'm going to head back into space. Then my crew and I shall patrol the system until the real diplomats arrive. In the meantime, uh, here. Just before we entered the ship, he handed me a computer drive of some kind. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, what is it? I asked as I gripped it. It was a bit heavy. Archives, basic stuff, histories, language, database, technical schematics for translators, and the programming to actually use them. Lots of stuff. Should keep you occupied until we can start going through the official diplomatic channels. And, uh, 
I included a little something in there. Don't tell anyone, he said, giving me a wink as he ushered me into our cabin. Mein Gott, feel the leather on these seats. France was a happy boy settling into his chair. Beard was too occupied looking around at all the electronics around him. Siren's gaze, siren's gaze, priority alert received. This is Captain Call of the Sinner's Refuge. We are entering system T-10. A radio message broke out. Copy that, Sinner's Refuge. We are currently in first contact procedures. Please maintain your distance and stay on standby. CENTCOM has already been briefed, Lukash replied, and a third told us that we had been released from the clamps. Bayard and friends were beside themselves as the ship that we were in glided effortlessly down to the planet's surface, without even encountering air resistance. I couldn't wait to see home again. Lorette was busy with the notepad, frantically writing down everything he could see, making observations about how the walls were built. As for me, well, I just couldn't wait to go home. Several months later, after this incident took place, we finally got in contact with the Terran Union. We were not yet allowed any real form of starship technology, with the humans setting up serious restrictions on uplifting policy. But they did get us some much-needed energy and resource tech, and in exchange for some local goods, Lukash, the human that we'd first encountered, agreed to mine some much-needed minerals for us. Humanity wanted us to reach the stars under our own power before they gave us anything real to work with. Within that time, the Terrans set up a dedicated ambassador operation by building a small outpost on our largest moon, and the taxi service needed to actually use it. Seven more human warships appeared in the system and acted as a defense fleet until we could get our own military force in place. That'll be decades down the line. It's good to know that we have someone that we can rely on long term. In any case, I've taken up enough of your time. See you in the void, friend. End of story. Humans are Space Goblins, written by John Galt. Tina's eyes were glued to a pilot seat ahead of her. Not even her keys would distract her from screaming bird wrenching the wheel from left to right. She nodded to herself as she watched. Her legs wrapped around the bars tight while G-Force threw her around. Her hands were out in front of the cage, gripping her phantom wheel, as roaring debris flashed past the glass ahead. She twisted the imaginary controls to the right, but the bird pushed forward to angle the ship down. She kept forgetting that they had up and down. Their crew barked orders to each other, their voices rising to try and compete with the randomly screaming pilot. She had no idea what they were saying. Push forward, ship goes down. Pull back, ship goes up. She recited the mantra to herself while pretending to steer the ship through the dogfighting aircraft ahead. Stray shots punched across the inside of the station, cutting into the decks. Eventually, someone hit something important because the whole damn thing started to vent space. Their ship turned against the wind and thrusting hard to keep from being sucked out. Most of the ships were thankfully shooting at each other, but that didn't stop them from taking shots of opportunity at a random pirate ship in the mix. The boat pilot screamed, the crew shouted, the prisoners cried and Tina cheered with glee. The whole spinning station began to tear itself apart as the Coriolis force finally beat its decade-long struggle against the structural integrity. Decks and floors all peeled away, like an opening flower of eating nothing at all. Her hands fell down, ignoring her phantom controls and staring at the black beyond the glass. She was in space. She was flying. She shook her head. She couldn't be distracted now. There was a flying to do and a bird pilot agreed. They both grabbed the throttle and punched it, no longer restrained by the narrow internals of the Calliope station. 
They could stretch their wings and fly across the battlefield. Their movements as one, she even remembered to take up and down movements into account. Up and down were normal. She had driven up and down stairs after all, so it's not like she didn't get the concept. The birds swept the ship around sideways, engine roaring like a skidding tire to drop all their speed, and crashed the underside of their ship to a lump of drifting wreckage. He grabbed the lever by the side and snapped it back. Tina put her hand to the rough position, caught pulling back. Kickstand, no, landing gear. She nodded to herself, toggling the imaginary lever. The bird let out a loud cry, and Tina let go of the phantom wheel to clap. Yeah, she cried. Their captain, tall, broad shoulders, and angry, like a humanoid green cheese grater brought to life, turned to the glare to her. She winced, her hands freezing, while her cheeks started to burn. She eased her grip around the bars with her thighs and slid back down to the floor of her cage. He wasn't really the applause sort. He was more of a punch guard, steel prisoners, their stuff and stuff him in the cage kind. She looked at her keys, jangling off a clip on his belt. She had tried to tell him that they were not a weapon, but oh no. They were sharp and shy, so he just had to have them. Grumpy Captain turned back to his pilot. The bird was furiously shaking his beak left and right and defeathering his own head. His co-crew were trying to steady his hands and whispers calming phrases while forcing them back into the controls. The captain put a heavy hand on the bird's shoulder and pushed him back down into the seat. Tina didn't have a translator, but she could guess. You need to fly, said Grumpy Captain. Thank you, said the bird. Who do you think you're talking to, mister? This wasn't in my job description, something, something. He talked for a long time, and Tina could no longer guess as to their dialogue. The bird let out a painful screech and threw himself out of their hands, jumping up from the seat and kicking himself away. He curled up in the fetal position by the prisoner cage, rubbing his hands slowly along the bull and mumbling to himself. The other prisoners were pretty much the same, mumbling chants, shivering, changing shades while pressing a tentacle to the food holes. Apparently, one of the prisoners was worth a lot. Tina had no idea which, and they weren't talking. The captain ran a hand over his scalp and pointed to a different crew who shrugged and shook their head. They were drifting through the battle between two groups of city-sized ships, most of their systems offline, the glass slowly fogging up without a heater. They were hiding, and so were temporarily safe, but they would have to leave at some point, and it would be safer to do it during a battle when everyone was distracted. He pointed to a lever and barked, the crew shook their heads and shrugged. Throttle, Tina whispered quietly to herself. He looked really distracted, his hands flicking through the manual, while others made themselves look really busy inspecting their consoles. Nobody was paying attention. Tina's legs unwrapped from the bars, and she slid herself between them. The other prisoners shook their heads and frantically waved their arms, but she didn't have a translator, so she had no idea what they meant. She sucked in her waist and squeezed through, wriggling her head free and tiptoed quietly in the half-G towards the captain, eyes locked on her keys. She gently eased the clip open when a big green hand snapped down over her waist. She flashed him a nervous toothy grin. His eyes ran over to her and up to the cage. You got out! I'm small. You speak good English. I speak it well. I also have a box I can stuff you in, he said. I'm not the expensive one. You won't get any ransom from me, so there's no point putting me in the box, she said. No, then we can lose the weight, he said. He seemed serious, but he was smiling. Maybe it was a threatening smile. She needed to say something. She couldn't nervously grin away out of this. 
If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, pizzas need to be hot, she said. He narrowed his eyes. Pizzas need to be hot, otherwise it's 50% off. And you can guess where the 50% comes from, but you can't go fast because then the police chase you. But if you do really go fast, they can't catch you, she said. His eyes flicked over to hers for a moment. You can fly this ship. Oh no, no way, not a Star Six. This is my first time even seeing one, she said. He dragged her to the pilot chair and pointed. This! Throttle, stick, brake, fuel, spark, pressure, pumps, valves, and... She reached down the seat, flicking one of the levers. Seat height. Can I have my keys now? Were your pizzas hot? He asked. Scorching, said Tina. Congratulations, you're my pilot, he said, while dumping her into the chair and spinning it about, so she faced the controls. I was told to ask about pay before I accepted just any keys if we get out, he said. Tina snapped the brake off. She pushed the fuel pump to max before hitting the spark, the tail cone igniting violently and hurling them away from the wreckage while she pulled down the harness. Up and down, left and right, she said, nodding to herself while testing all the controls. There were loud thumps and bangs behind her of stuff being hurled around in the G-Force. Systems roared to life, screens winking on and displaying alien garbled. First things first, she said. She couldn't read any of it, so she pulled back on the stick, sending them into a backward roll and giving her a chance to get a really good look at what was around her. You can't run from the cops if you don't know where they are. There were two distinct walls of ships with them and wreckage in the middle. She couldn't push through either side, so she had to run along the length of the battle. She pushed down the stick to ease their roll and punch the accelerator forward. It was nothing like driving. They would constantly drift sideways wherever they flew. Her eyes flicked over to the pumps, nodding to herself and snapping over valves, killing their down, up and forward feeds, throwing all pumps onto the left and right maneuvering thrusters. No brakes. She tested her theory and slammed the brake pedal. Her whole body was thrown into the left as they skidded across the place, losing all the drift in that direction, but none of their speed. They steadied out, forming a straightforward line. Okay, I think I've got it, she shouted. She was doing it. She was flying. Her eyes snapped left and right, seeing the walls closing in as the two fronts of ships started to collide. Smaller weapons lighting up than shooting arcs of golden light and streamed across her path. There was a loud alarm somewhere. Evade! shouted the captain guy. Tina dropped their thrust and spun the control. She eyed one of the cruisers on her right and punched it to max. She ignored the brake, using their drift to bring them around in a wide flaming arc. Keeping her nose pointed at the ship as they screamed sideways, drifting was really easy in space. She could see smoke on her right, a tiny ship chasing them. Lights started to flare between her and the tiny smoke ship. They're shooting us, he climbed up to the console beside her, gripping it tight and pointed. That's a missile. Those lights are our guns. We have guns, she cried. The missile was getting closer, so she brought up the ship around to point it towards it, her foot hovering above the brake as they careened towards the hull of the cruiser on their left. They sank down towards it, closer and closer. A light started to blink with its own loud siren. What's that? She shouted while staring at the rapidly closing wall on her left. Proximity! She pushed the light, but it wasn't a button and wouldn't shut up. What a useless alarm. She knew they were close. That was the whole point. She killed their speed and slammed the brake, drifting backwards just above the hull, leaving a long black line down the enemy's side from their braking thruster. The missile suddenly careened left and smashed down into the hull. Plates and decks bloomed out, heaving giant chunks of exploding ship out into space. 
It was spectacular and Tina cried out with glee. She threw the pumps, killed the right thruster and accelerated, spinning them on a dime and pulling them around to face the direction of movement again. She had a moment while skipping like a stone over the enemy ship to glance at the dash. Where, where's your license go? She asked. What? He said. The thing that tells people who you are, she said. Friend or foe? Yeah, that. He came around to her right and pointed at the slot with a tag that hung from the chain beside it. It looked like the driver's license slot and would probably work on a ship just like it did on her moped. She adjusted their trim and ease along the remaining length of the cruiser and reached into her pants, pulling out her MP3 player. She plugged in a broken headphone cable while steering with a knee. What are you doing? He said. You don't drive without a license. People shoot at people without licenses. She called while laying the broken cable over the cartridge contacts. She jammed it into the slot with the wire hanging out, giving it a few hits of a palm until it was seated. But if you drive with a license, they definitely know it's expired. So you send them glitchy bullshit, she said, turning on both the friend and foe thing and her MP3 player. Maybe they're a friend and it's broken. Maybe your system's broken. Maybe double check before you shoot bloody missiles at them, she shouted. They ran down between the enemy thrust cones, silencing another missile alarm. They had to go through one of the walls of the ships. They would fly through the middle, but when there wasn't a middle bit anymore. Her eyes snapped from one ship to the next, bringing them in close and evading the maneuver thrusters that barked out cones of flames around them. Once we're out of the other side, there is nowhere to hide, she called. Once we're clear, you jump, he said. Hi. I don't know how to do that. I didn't see the bird use the jump, she said. Back, he shouted. I know, she cried. He clung to the dash with one hand, blood running down the temple while furiously flicking through the manual with the other. Lights of gold flicked across the window, chasing them like inflatable tube men. She was too far past their ships and they had a clear line without hitting their own. Rattling sounds rolled over the hull. That's our gun, right? No! He shouted while flicking pages. He suddenly dropped the manual and flipped a few switches above her, then grabbed a big lever and threw it. Space went weird and Hazard Alarm started screaming at her. Everything she touched screamed. Oh, we're jumping? She asked. Yes! Kill the engine! She snapped off the thruster and let the wheel go. She turned off systems as she went, silencing the alarms one at a time until the dash was quiet. She held her hands above the console, nodding to herself and glancing from it to the slightly warped starfield. So, we're safe. I am, he said. She grinned and reached down, pulling the lever to drop her seat height and recline it back, looking up at his grumpy upside-down face. He was bleeding from his temple still. Thank you. I've always wanted to try that, she said. What exactly did you fly before? He asked. Keys, she said, and she caught them in her lap. She fumbled over them, pulling up a metal tag and holding it up for him to see. That's me. That's my moped. I asked Mr. Garbles to put the police cars on it too, but he wouldn't. Tina sat in a cargo container, arms folded and grumbling to herself. She heard the lock snap open and rose to the huff to shout, but instead she just squinted and flinched from the blinding light. Slowly. She started to make out the shapes of his quarters and his big grumpy face. He held out a manual towards her. Study this and eat, he said. She eyed the soup. It smelled good, but she wasn't sure what she could trust it. What is it? Bird soup. She happily started to sip that bowl. She loved chicken soup. Study the manual, then you can come out of the box. So, uh, so I've got a job, she said, trying to keep the smile off her face. 
He reached into his pocket and pulled out her keys. His glare didn't soften, but he left her alone with the manual and the lid off so it sounded like yes. She grinned and slid down the wall of her cargo crate, easing down the burning bowl and flicking over the key tags to her locket, opening it, opening it up to her mother's face and putting up the manual. Got a job, a real one this time, and I remembered to ask for proper pay. Boss is grumpy, but he has a squishy side, she said while flicking through the pages. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps, Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azrakal. Thank you very much.